You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. For centuries, alchemists tried to make gold from base metals. Today, we make microchips from silicon, which is common sand, but far better than gold. Hmm? <laughs> now, for several years, we've had a profitable partnership, you as manufacturers, while I acquired and passed on to you industrial information that made you competitive, successful. We are now in the unique position to form an international cartel to control not only production, but distribution of these microchips. There is one obstacle. <laughs> Silicon Valley, near San Francisco. Over 250 plants employing thousands of scientists, technicians. This is the heartland of electronic production in the United States, which accounts for, what, 80% of the world microchip market. I propose to end the domination of Silicon Valley and leave us in control of that market. What is it you propose? Project Main Strike for which each of you will pay me $100 million. $100 million? Plus half our net income? Under an exclusive marketing agreement with me. These are outrageous terms. Well, perhaps a, a, a demonstration would convince you. I want no part of it, thank you. As you wish. Hmm. The rest of our discussion must, of course, be confidential. Would you wait outside? You'd like me to? Yes. Excuse me. Thank you. Mayday. I provide you with a drink. This way. Does anybody else want to drop out? Welcome to the 602 Club. I am just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing, and welcome, as always, to a place where we're about to dive into something fabulous, spectacular, and, well, at least the hosts look that way tonight. I am so excited to be joined by uh, what a splendiferous-looking pair right here in front of me. I wish you all could see them, but my goodness, you guys clean up well. John Champion, welcome back to the 602 Club. Well, thank you, Matthew. It was quite the introduction. And, you know, it's, we, we have to give the credit to our other fellow co-hosts here, but it, it felt right to honor the end of the Roger Moore Bond era on a 602 Club with, with something special. It it did absolutely, Christy. I'm so glad that you had the idea, um, and I'm honoring it in a completely different way. But let everybody know what you had and had planned for us tonight. Sure. You know, I think originally when we started talking about the Roger Moore era, I was a little bit harsh, and have come to realize on my rewatching that I I don't give him enough credit. And especially in the year when we've sadly lost him, I think that it's just due to tell everyone how great he really was and you know that we've said he's done the greatest job he could with what he's been given and um and I you know remember them now um enjoying them a little bit more on my rewatch than I originally did 
Um, so I thought that it would be nice for our final film of the Roger Moore era to dress a little fancy and decided to ask everybody to dress up tonight, even though you guys can't see us. Well, and I got to say, it's a view to a kill uh, tonight. Uh, I mean, oh. goodness. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Christy looks like a million bucks. John does the oh, same. And I, well, I'm honoring Roger Moore and his last film uh, in my sweats because, well, um, Bond wore sweats in this film. So uh, I just figured it as was the right thing to do. As long as your pants don't say juicy. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, not, don't my, judge uh, him. No, don't judge uh, him. My pants do not say juicy or tasty on the butt. Anything like that. So um, uh, that's a great Gilmore Girls reference right there. Um, So (laughs) anyway, we're good. As we as you've already figured out, we're going to be talking about a view to a kill as as we wrap up Roger Moore's era here of Bond. But before we do that, just want to remind everybody that. You can find all the shows we do here on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. Every single show is there that we do. While you're there, though, uh. First, do a few things. One, subscribe, because when you subscribe to the show, you get the show as soon as I drop it. As soon as it's published, you can be the one of the first ones to listen to it. Two, uh, hit us up with a star rating review. It helps more people find the show. It really does. Um, your star rating reviews uh, actually it's this weird thing. It just helps us rise in the rankings. And I don't know how to explain it other than your review actually helps more people find the show. So if you want to help out the show, give us that star rating review. You can find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We're actually uh, also on Facebook. We've got a listeners only discussion group there on Facebook. You can find it's called the Babel conference on Facebook, type Babel in the search field, or if you're at our website at trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars, and that'll bring you over there. And last but not least, one of the great places, hit us up with an email. Go over to the trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club. That email will come to me and any hosts that are on that week, and I love getting emails. You know, we, we had gotten some emails recently. It's a lot of fun, people having ideas for shows or just having comments on the shows, and, and that's a blast and gives me an opportunity to share what you're thinking directly on the show, too. So, again, that is trek.fm slash contact. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is interesting because... Uh, You know, usually there's a lot of behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on with the Bond films. And as we continue this Bond, really the only thing that's happening behind the scenes is that Roger Moore has let them know that this is going to be his last film as Bond. Because as he... Uh, mentions in the extras he's he says you know at that point i was already pretty long in the tooth uh <laughs> so he says the word yes he actually <laughs> says those words he, he it's him that uh, brings that to light and so um i kind of wanted to ask you guys uh just about that it's been working through these roger moore films and we and, and we're kind of we're at his last film here um what would you uh, just put yourself in the perspective of being back in 1985, even if you weren't born, Christy. Um, and um, <laughs> what would you want as a fan from the last Roger Moore? I mean, the, the era that, you know, cemented Bond as like this massive, overarching, I mean, just conglomerate of films. You know, it, it really changed films. What w- would it be? do you think that you would want from the last Roger Moore film? For me, it would be to go out in style because that was all Bond's forte anyway. I wouldn't want it to be something that fell flat, which, you know, it kind of felt like this did a little bit, but I felt like it, like I said, had a lot of more redeeming qualities that I didn't remember till my rewatch that did make it feel like... I don't know, like Roger was letting loose a little bit more in this one. I think that he seems to make that face a lot of the uh, eyes wide open, goofy smile (laughs) in this movie than he ever did in the others. And I just thought he's having fun with this. And I like that. So that it made me happy in it. And I I like the way that we went out with him. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about. Um, Gosh, uh, well, for the last two films that we've talked about to say that what I want for Roger Moore is 
a sense of dignity for the character. He's doing everything he can to make these good. He's doing everything he can to to play it the right way. But the movies around him are just getting more and more ridiculous and squeezing in more and more jokes. And um, and they don't need to do that. Um, I'm okay with an aging Bond. I'm okay with a more human Bond. And I think that Roger Moore was talented enough that he could have played any of those levels. But I, I feel like this is a movie by rote. And they, they sort of look back at well, the silliest being Moonraker and just saying like, well, okay, we, we had jokes there. We had the double take pigeon, the triple take pigeon, or, you know, we, we go back to J.W. Pepper, a couple of movies before that. Well, that, that got a laugh from somebody. So we've just got to squeeze in something silly here. And in this case, instead of having J.W. Pepper, you have the most stereotyped French cab driver you could possibly squeeze in with only about Oh, eight words of dialogue, and they're all the same, <laughs> you know. Um, and it just felt bad. I, I just felt like it, it was the writers and producers letting down Bond and letting down Roger Moore. The, we could acknowledge that the character is getting older. We could acknowledge that the actor in the character is getting older, but still let him end this with something cool that makes you feel like you've you've been on a ride and now the ride has come to a close um and and i just felt like uh throughout this they were just trying to throw him into the same old formula that had worked before well and, and that's what's so interesting it, it almost feels like maybe the lack of drama happening behind the scenes that everything became kind of routine like again it's just this machine now this bond machine and we're just here to give the fans more bond and so it kind of feels like they're on bond autopilot you know um right. and and the script really feels like that too I, I feel like you know michael wilson and richard maybaum writing the script here it just kind of feels like okay this is the formula let's just plug in new things um but there's no real change to anything here. There's nothing. I mean, this film um, isn't going to give you anything revolutionary in the Bond formula. It's not going to surprise you, really. Um, it's just going to kind of, you know, do what Bond does, you know, these days. And even Octopussy, I feel like, um, you know, they were trying to do some new things. Like they had the uh, woman there to help out money penning, right? to be mm -hmm. maybe her replacement she's completely devoid I, she's gone in this movie there's there's none of her here um there's yeah, it was weird they didn't have her back <laughs> yeah there's none of that stuff here um you know and uh, yeah and instead we're gonna get um you know robot dogs basically uh, so yeah. and Q being creepy with his robot dog. really creepy <laughs> uh, apparently Q oh needs to get out more yeah. Uh, yeah. so yeah I think you know it's interesting because in this continuing bond it's just it really does feel like we are continuing bond because that's what we do not because it's like we have a story we have to tell with bond right right and it, it's interesting because you know it doesn't even feel like they're mining the books whatsoever at this point. They're just taking the titles and then creating their own thing instead of finding any kind of inspiration from the character, from his past, or even finding inspiration from what they've done beforehand. Like, you know, uh, and maybe that's just a hallmark of storytelling at this time period, but, you know, in the early 80s, uh, sequels are becoming much more in vogue. Um, you know, Star Wars has had, you know, The Empire Strikes Back at this point. It's had Empire uh, Return of the Jedi as well. You know, we've had two Indiana Jones films uh, with sequels, you know, uh, where they're really kind of these movies that are using each other to tell larger stories, you know. But Bond is definitely stuck, I feel like, in the past. And, and we're not even... This movie just kind of has, it feels like no reference to anything else that's come before. It's just very... Its own individual yeah, story yeah, thrown in. Yeah, exactly. And, and how unfortunate because they had done such a good job with even a little scene uh, like in Honor Majesty's Secret Service where you have the retrospective with the other missions or 
the opening of uh, was it in the opening of uh, For Your Eyes Only? Yes. The, the yeah. The, so we talked about how silly that became, but you actually reference Tracy. You, you reference Bond's wife, and what a great opportunity here! You know, it's going to be the last Roger Moore Bond film to tie in some of the other elements that made us all love Roger Moore as Bond. Mm-hmm. Why not do that? It, really, the only tie-in we get is, is that, well, yeah, you have M and Q and Moneypenny, uh, and you have General Gogol. You know, so you have characters there that, that have been around. And General Gogol, depending on the movie, he's either a little sil- sillier or a little more sinister. Um, but, it, it, yeah, what a, what a shame that we didn't get to know a little more of Bond in this instead of just really throwing men to an action movie that that could have been anything. But I do think that I forgive it a little for the things that I ended up liking um, that I, you know, had forgotten about, like this whole throw in with the KGB kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend mm-hmm. scenario where mm-hmm. um, Gogol is saying, you will come back to the KGB. People don't leave. <laughs> right. And yeah. uh, then basically he and Bond, they're not working together, but they sort of are, you know, without being partners, they're both trying to accomplish the same goal and sabotage Zorin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, there there are a lot of elements here to the story and to the characters that I do quite like. I, I think it really goes off the rails in the third act, pretty much by mm-hmm. the time we get to San Francisco. Things start Fire to not, yeah. Things start to not feel right in this movie. Although th- there are many great elements of that chase, um, just I, the burning building. I mean, it's incredible looking. Um, there's something terrifying about being on a fast moving fire truck in San Francisco. Sure, o- on its own, these are interesting elements. But um, you started to lose me pretty much once we got there. But But I will give them this. One of my complaints about Moonraker was that it felt like uh, there was something wrong with the pacing, where it was just literally, we're going to take Bond and move him from point A to point B, where somebody will try to kill him. And then point B to point C, where somebody will try to kill him. And then point C to point D, where somebody will try to kill him. And and it, it, it felt wrong. And in this, it felt like there was at least more to discover and it, something as simple as Bond going to Zorin's chateau for the uh, the horse auctions and then sort of weaving his way around everybody there and then Zorin figuring out who he is, then it, it felt like Zorin trying to kill Bond was earned <laughs> at that mm-hmm. point instead of just remarking time in the movie. I think that's a, I, that's a great time to segue kind of talking it about the story. You know, we have microchips and Russians and horses and Silicon Valley and like all of these things. And how do you feel like that all kind of plays together? Because the, the beginning of the film has Bond in Siberia getting a microchip um, mm. that uh, a previous agent had died collecting. He gets that microchip, and they find out that it's connected with Zorn, and that starts this whole avalanche of storytelling. All, no pun intended. Yeah, uh, all based around, <laughs> I mean, but not before, you know, he gets into his, like, the strangest submarine I've ever seen, Piloted by Dude, the, the, oh, the by a woman, we never see that, again. You know, yeah. we never meet again. Who's only there apparently to keep him busy for you know however many days they're going to be traveling. Days. Yeah, this yeah. made me so mad. The opening scene made me so mad because here's the thing: you're in that location, and all you can think about is how awesome the opening of the Spy Who Loved Me was, mm-hmm. and you're like, whoa. If we're doing a parallel to that, this has got to be even more awesome. And then it sucked. <laughs> then... Because he started singing California Girls? <laughs> yes! Well, East he Coast Girls are hip. Uh, I mean, you didn't uh, you didn't dig on that, John? I mean, No, I hated that, and I hated the submarine because, yeah, it's a great idea to have a submarine that looks like an iceberg, it didn't look like an iceberg. It looked just like a concrete mess that it was so obviously the thing that the Russians should should target. 
and blow up. Right. Um, the alligator submarine from Octopus was more convincing. It, it looks kind of like an alligator head, but made out of <laughs> right. fiberglass. Just, just. But it hadn't oh. been painted. It was. Oh. It was really bad. And uh, no, I agree with you because, uh, you know, starting everything off, the the scene starts off great, and you're kind of getting those vibes from you know on Her Majesty's Secret Services ski scene, which is fantastic. I mean, one of the best ski scenes in film. Uh, then you get. Um, you know, like you said, The Spy Who Loved Me, which, again, mm-hmm. really great opening. And then you get this, and it just kind of ends with this thud that's just so bad. And and it's yeah. so, like, this is, the, this is the cliche of Roger Moore that everybody kind of thinks of, where, right. I mean, he, he does a lame action scene and then ends up in bed with a woman you don't care about. So it's like, whatever. You know, I, that's the thing that people think of, I think, when they think of Bond movies and make fun of them, because this is the worst of the tropes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they could have, instead of the point where they trail off into playing California Girls and then to the submarine, they could have elevated it and done something like they did in The Spy Who Loved Me. You know, I mean, him taking off on the parachute was so cool and that it was just, you know, it opens up into the Union Jack and then you're in. You know, this could have been like he continues skiing off into the distance to some, you know, melodic music or something. But it but just you completely derailed it. He invented snowboarding. So, <laughs> I mean. Bond doesn't snowboard. It didn't fit. I didn't like it. Which I, I thought was funny because, of course, they're referencing the fact that snowboarding has become a thing at this point. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it it becomes an interesting uh Part of the story, him losing his skis, you know, and, and then kind of doing this kind of, um, you know, instead of skiing on one ski, which he already did in this, uh, Under Majesty's Secret Service, here he's going to, you know, create a, a snowboard, which, you know, that was actually kind of fun. Again, it just kind of gets ruined because they put really dumb music over it. And, and I don't need to hear California Girls. I need to hear the Bond theme at that point mm-hmm. telling me yes. how awesome this is. You ruin it by cheapening the joke because you yeah. made it a joke and it didn't need to be a joke. It should have nope. been serious. Yep. So, um, and, the, and the microchips are interesting too because obviously Silicon Valley is a huge thing and the, com- the computer is starting to take off uh, at this point. And the, it's becoming something that's more and more important. And how that plays into Zorin and him winning the horse races and stuff is the part where I have to say in the story that I just kind of got bored. <laughs> yes. Like it, 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 like the fact that we take this huge detour into horse racing feels like we didn't even do that in Goldfinger and we were on a mm-hmm. horse ranch. So yeah. this, yeah. you just it lose me. It does feel like a big detour that doesn't end up anywhere i mean it seriously that it just completely switches goals to talking about the microchips again not the horse part and so i think that it was a good idea in theory to try and go with microchips and talking about magnetization and how that could affect nukes and you know all of their defense systems and everything that was interesting but yeah like what you're saying matt with um talking about injecting a microchip into a horse to make him win it felt like they could have just gone the route of saying he was taking undetectable steroids and that would have been better or mm-hmm. really not had the horse racing involved and had the microchip highlighted in some other way. Yeah, you, you have to have you have to establish that Zorin is connected and wealthy and manipulative no matter what. And, and I get it that you have the horse race stuff there to sort of paint that picture um, until the reveal of what he's actually into, which is the microchip thing, and then going beyond that, oh, we're going to destroy Silicon Valley. You know, I like I, I get all that on paper. It sort of makes sense, but the way it plays out in the movie, you just like you said, Matt, you just sort of like, wait, wait, wait was I supposed to pay attention to that? Is this really about horses? What do we do now that the horses have been uh, it, that we've revealed what's going on here? Do we take back his trophy? <laughs> you know? And where is Pegasus? <laughs> and where is Pegasus? Yeah. Uh, no, it just um, 
And then the way that in it kind of brings in the Russians, but then the Russians are kind of on our side and everything. It's just so it doesn't feel organic. Like yeah. it, it, it feels it's too like many stories. Right. And it feels like plot points instead of uh, something that kind of evolves out of the story and you and you feel like it's taking you like you were saying, John, on your on the adventure that some of the best Roger Moore films have where they it doesn't, I don't know, just doesn't feel so, oh, well, this is plot point A and this is plot point B and this is plot point C and this is D. You know, like you, you feel that in this movie and part of it, it's just, yeah, they don't all connect well enough to make you feel like you're really watching a coherent story you just kind of feel like you're watching oh well that was puzzle piece a and b and c and you know um it it feels like that bond paint by numbers so Mm -hmm. and and that's Mm -hmm. what we get and and um you know it it is sad because the storyline about silicon valley and you know a villain wanting to flood silicon valley so that they're the only microchip providers um you know that does feel like uh, we've lowered the stakes, right? It's not world domination, but this does kind of feel like something a supervillain would kind of want to do. And yeah, you actually kind of have a kernel of a good idea there. And it yeah, it, you, you can wrap your head around it. And and like you said, you know, uh, microchips, computers, these are things that are on people's mind uh, minds. So that's like I, I buy that, and I buy having an industrialist as the villain. I, mm-hmm. I think that makes it. We will see that again in other Bond movies. So I, I get where they're going with that, which is the the opposite of a guy who's just like, well, I'm going to commit genocide and then repopulate the earth with my own chosen people. <laughs> you know, it's like you can only go so far with that. But but this is something you sort of wrap your head around. And go, hmm, yeah, okay. How would somebody corner a market and then what would they do with it? And if, if they were really a, a, a psychopath which by the way that is they use that word twice in this movie and it's entirely overused twice in this movie <laughs> because i it, interesting that they would say yeah that um these these children who were the uh you know the result of these genetic experiments uh, uh if they lived they were psychopathic and uh, and i thought well okay all of bond's villains have been psychopathic. He doesn't Pretty even point it out and say, wait, a, he actually says he's a psychopath. Like, yeah, Bond, they're all psychopaths. <laughs> I mean, trying to take over the world. Just this one. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Pretty much means you're a psychopath. Um, yes, yes. What is interesting in this movie is that there are two different people that are kind of help for Bond. Um, that, you know, we've kind of had these different films. We've had Felix Leiter and people like that. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that we get a couple of more here in this movie. And, and Patrick McNee, who was in The Avengers, playing uh, Sir Godfrey Tibbet, I have to say um, he's one of the bright spots in this movie. There, back and forth, is hysterical. Um, I, I really like him as a character. Um, he also narrates a lot of the um, the Bond making of documentaries that you get on the Blu-rays and the DVDs. So um, that's fantastic. So I'm already used to his voice. Um, but I just, I really liked this guy. And I, I feel like Roger Moore went out of his way to put him down as much as possible. Um, and which, then they killed him. Yeah, and then they kill him. <laughs> It's so sad. I really loved Tibbet. Like, I really, he just was a, like you said, a bright spot in this movie because the whole scene with him being Bond's driver to his quarters at the horse races and um, their conversation where you know that you can tell they're trying to keep up appearances because they're probably being recorded um, of, you know, Bond being his master but it's so funny because you can tell the whole time that he's saying it tongue in cheek, his responses back to Bond and that out on the balcony, he's going, do we have to keep this up? <laughs> um, so it does break your heart that they kill him, um, even on the rewatch. But you kind of get that he may need to go anyway, that, you know, there's not much for him to do once they take off from uh, Zoran's residence. Um but yeah, it, uh, and I and I couldn't tell at first, even this time, if it was 
uh, Jenny Flex or if it was Mayday that killed him in the car because Jenny was at the gas station too. Right, right. Yeah, I, I thought it was Mayday who killed him that Jenny yeah, Flex was just sort of there to make sure it happened. I, I, I don't know, or, or just, you know, clean she up. She just needed after. gas too. She did, she did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, girl needs gas. Um, but yeah, I, I loved Tibbet and I loved Patrick McNee, McNee and I felt I felt really bad that they killed him because um, I kept thinking John Steed is this British hero. He he was James Bond on TV and I wanted him to I, I don't know I, I if this was sort of the reintroduction of Patrick McNee in that world. I wanted it to be better and I wanted him to be more awesome. Their interaction was hilarious and he did have something legitimate to bring to the table in the role to actually help Bond. But, oh, I just, oh, I, I hated that they killed him. I really did. Just Or if you do, just save it for a little later in the movie. Let, let me enjoy him a little bit more in that role. It makes me but wonder, say, like, why do you kill him, though? Because why don't you just bring him to San Francisco to continue helping Bond out? Like, why does right, he need right. to die? Like, um, it feels like, because we already know at that point that Zorn's a bad dude, right? We don't really mm -hmm. need him to be told to the audience that he's not a good dude. Um, I just, I feel like him... Uh, Taking them both maybe as prisoner might be more interesting. Um, hmm. And and just you might not need the Chuck Lee character then at that point uh, in San Francisco. You could just have Patrick McNee come over, um, or 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 let him die with a little more dignity. Yeah, let him there die you go. because he's saving Bond. Yes, yes. Not yeah. because he's die in a car trying. wash. You know. Yeah, I mean yeah. nothing nothing worse than dying at the car wash. You know, <laughs> like just. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't play that song while he died, you know? Oh, yeah, right, so. right. Yeah. But I do think that it gave a little bit of a a good, needed, serious moment for Bond because you can see the way Roger Moore plays up that scene where he realizes that Tibbet is dead. Yeah. That kind of hits you. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Where the rest of the movie doesn't as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, that that is the thing, and I think... You know, we I think we do have something. They should have just hired us as writers. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the fact that if you have him die helping Bond escape, yeah. that gives you everything you want. You know, the hero yeah. moment for him um, and, and makes him more of an important character to the story, but still will give Bond a moment, you know, because, you know, we don't usually see Bond too frustrated that somebody's died. You know, but to kind of have mm -hmm. him be remorseful that knowing that this action is going to cause his death and all and maybe have an internal struggle about that or something. I mean, we're just asking way too much of a Roger Boar Bond, uh, Roger Moore <laughs> Bond movie here. But um, it, it would have been something I wish they would have thought of um, to give that even more weight because yeah. he is such a fun character. I mean, you know, honestly, he's better than just about any time Felix Leiter's been involved in a bond film at this point so, certainly more memorable yeah yeah. Mm. yeah um so i mean we get david yip is chuck lee who's the cia agent who's assisting bond and sutton in san francisco um and i was just uh, surprised that he didn't actually have more to do like he, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, really get a lot to do <laughs> yeah it, it's a shame he's he's likable he's capable and you know, that could have been on paper, uh, uh, you know, Felix Leiter's substitute <laughs> that we just throw in. I'm surprised it didn't mention Felix or, or him say anything uh, uh, that Chuck Lee would say anything about him. Um, but yeah, why then introduce that new character and give him nothing to do? Yeah, I completely agree. He was forgettable for me. See, that's the thing. Like, John, like you said, why don't you just put Felix in that position? Mm -hmm. You know, because then we already have, I mean, then it creates that, con it, it feels as though they just, they kind of forgot about that continuity almost. And, yeah. and, and I, I get why in San Francisco you might have a, an Asian agent 
Makes sense. Mm-hmm. San Francisco has a large Asian population. You represent that well by having sure. him, um, which I think is fantastic. But then you don't actually let him really do anything other than be, uh, you know, a, an expositor for yeah. a few seconds on screen, and that's pretty much it. Um, he doesn't really get anything else to do, which is it's just frustrating. You know, um, you create a character and then you don't use him. It it doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know. Let's be honest. This movie doesn't make a ton of sense. <laughs> so, um, having the the other KGB woman coming in and having bath time, and she doesn't get the tape she was supposed to get, and then she's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Oh, that I was hurts. Going, Wait. Am I watching a different movie? <laughs> it, it, right. It felt like. Some weird soft core thing, you know, just it did crept yeah. its way into this Bond movie that didn't have anything to it. It felt like one of those scenes from one of those types of movies where it doesn't really make any sense. We just need some right. sexy everything time. is so awkward, and then yeah. she goes, Tchaikovsky, yes, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. not good, not good. Um, uh, and uh, like, yeah, what, uh, yeah, I mean, hmm. uh, I get that she's pretty and I mean all that stuff, but it just it doesn't I don't doesn't no. make any sense. Um so the villains though that we get here and, and our main villain in Zorn, you know, I have to say this is actually kind of the the main downfall of the movie is letting down its villain, <laughs> not just Bond, but mm. it lets down a villain that I think is is truly willing to show his psychosis on screen by actively being a part of the murdering of people you know like he we show this to be a really bad guy you know he is so mm-hmm. cavalier about everybody's death that he's about to cause and and that's that's a good bond bad guy he's just in a really bad bond movie so that he becomes like one of the most forgettable bond villains and i have to say i mean why you want to ruin you know, Christopher Walken. I I don't understand. You know, I knew that was coming. I, just, I knew that was coming. You know, we were waiting for <laughs> maybe, the impression. Maybe you should have had more cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I I do like Christopher Walken in this. I mean, think about how many Bond villains. You go to the the extreme memorable like Donald Pleasance's Blofeld because of that image, that striking scar on the face. And then you go to Michael Lonsdale in Moonraker, who we liked better than um, uh, Stromberg from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. But Michael Lonsdale felt like sort of, okay, insert James Mason type here. With Christopher Walken, you have something totally different from the bad guys that we've seen on screen up until now in a Bond film. This sort of like, you know, the young, blonde, uh, uh, energetic, uh, like it, it's creepy to watch him blasting away at all the workers in the mine uh, yes. later in the movie. And yeah, I, I didn't, I thought calling him out as a psychopath was just dumb, lazy writing because clearly he is, but he is absolutely playing that role as just a psychopath right there on his sleeve, you know? So it's nice to see. A, uh, a, an actor take to playing a villain like that with so much energy and enthusiasm. Yeah, I completely thought that he was the bit the best part of this movie, really, in my opinion. Um, because a, I love Christopher Walken, and thank you, Matt, for that wonderful impression. <laughs> I don't know um, how wonderful but... it was, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> but he he does play this just um, vivacious kind of villain um more than we've ever seen before and has no remorse whatsoever about just taking a machine gun to a room full of people which is terrifying to you as a fan watching this movie um and then i love that he does get some kind of jokey moments here and there um where he, he, I tell my husband, I love that he's standing in that room in the mine and he's shoots a bunch of people and then he stops and he looks at all these guys standing around and instead of just saying like, why are you just standing there? He goes, get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was right. like, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, just classic Christopher Walken to me. But it's nice to, 
for someone who um, you know is a little bit younger, I've seen him in a lot of different movies. Seeing him as a young actor is so much different and in a good way. So I liked, you know, getting to see him at sort of the start of his career and still just an amazing presence on screen, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I could not have pictured another person playing Zorin in this role. I really think that Christopher Walken was the perfect choice and, um, and, and I love the way that he played it. But I think that the part that cheapened him the most was his death being so anticlimactic. Yeah. I mean, it was like he, he looked like he was laughing and then suddenly he fell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're just left going, well, that was sad. <laughs> yeah. And the most interesting thing about him, too, is is how he is this um, experiment, you know, with the Nazis and the, you know, East Germany and working for the KGB and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's all very interesting stuff. And it just kind mm-hmm. of gets passed over so quickly, and we never really do anything with it. And and he's just not given a movie to which you care about him as a villain. Because otherwise, I think in another Bond film with him as the villain in a better movie, you know, he's he's maybe looked at in a whole different light. You you give yeah, him a better movie, and he would be one of the most iconic bil- villains of Bond. And instead, he becomes one of the most laughable villains of Bond for the film that surrounds him. Um, and, you know, I think part of that, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but Grace Jones might have something to do with that as his henchman and <laughs> lever and something. Um, I mean, I, I get that Grace Jones is part of, as a friend of mine called the cult of personality in those days. Mm. And not necessarily a great actress or anything. Um, she was dating Dolph Lundgren at the time, so and he's in the film. But uh, she's not good in this movie at all. At all. Too stiff. Uh, yeah. She's very flexible, like... but the acting is wooden. <laughs> <laughs> stiff in the acting. <laughs> well, I, here's the, I, I will defend her a little bit. She's She's not a great actor in this movie, absolutely. But... Like Christopher Walken, she's bringing the crazy a little Mm. bit in this movie. So there's something about her trying to match his already heightened state in this that I'm okay with to an extent. I'm glad that there's not more of her in this than we get. I I think if there had been more focus on her, it would have been even worse. (laughs) It would have made a bad situation even worse. Um, But yeah, she's... You know, if you go back to 1984, 1985, and you're looking for looking for just someone sort of iconic and a little weird and a little dangerous and 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 immediately recognizable, she's the one you go with. You know, mm-hmm. I, I so I, I get the decision to put her in there. I'm more a fan of putting her in this movie. Then I am a say, oh, when we get to it, putting Madonna in Die Another Day. (laughs) I I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, do I want her, Denise Richards? I just, I don't know. know. Uh, It's a tough call, tough call. Mm -hmm. Mm. (laughs) And I like the character name. Mayday is a cool name. Sure. And it's an interesting prospect to have you know, a female sort of bodyguard henchwoman, if you will, for our villain. Um, and at first, that whole scene of her sort of working with training Zorin and karate is kind of cool. But then they it's a make lot of it thong, weird. Though. It's a lot of thong. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it did kind of remind me of the, you know, whole scene with Bambi and Thumper having sort of that wild child acrobat back in a movie. Yeah, yeah, very true. But they made yeah. it so weird when it felt like almost like rape or something where he, you know, suddenly like overpowers her and kisses her against her will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- so it it yeah. just, it yeah, it was like all of a sudden you're sitting there going, oh, that got awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. having her sleep with Bond didn't make sense either. <laughs> it just seemed like, well, no. he's in my bed, so what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
It just Matt, you look yeah. like you're a lot of things that just don't make sense. They don't add up. Um, right. Kind of like Tanya Roberts is our Bond angel. Um, Pass. Yeah, she's uh, a. <laughs> she's Ouch. she's not just a Bond woman. She's a Bond angel because she was mm-hmm. a Charlie's angel. And um, this is another part of the storyline that just feels so kind of forced in that she's this granddaughter of an oil tycoon whose company's been taken over by Zorn, and she's trying to prove that he's a bad guy. And like, of course, she gets involved with Bond and everything. And there's nothing against Tanya Roberts. She seems like a genuinely nice person, but she's not a good actress whatsoever. And it's just everything. She is the classic damsel in distress. And it's just, she is a bad Bond girl. Bad Bond girl. <laughs> but she was pretty. She had that going for her. She is yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> I, she's beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I have to say I do at least... I was trying to think of what I remembered her so well from, and then I realized it was from that 70s show. <laughs> mm-hmm. That and Sheena. Um, and I, I like her kind of raspier voice. Mm-hmm. And I do think she's absolutely beautiful. And you're interested in her character when she first appears on screen because she's different in this world of all the other people in the film. Um, just in her look and um, demeanor and everything, you're thinking at first she's a horse buyer, but they don't really explain well why he pays her off, Zoran does, um, until later in the movie. And then um, it, it you do kind of feel ridiculous in that scene of Bond making her quiche and them having a chat. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, okay, now we're watching Food Network? I don't understand. <laughs> Um, but I don't know. There is something that I still kind of like about her as a Bond girl, um, being a little bit more innocent and that he doesn't immediately sleep with her. He sort of treats it like you're a nice girl and I'm going to put you to sleep and I'm going to go in here. But then, you know, at the end, of course they get together. So I I don't know. I, it's 50, 50 for me. I like her, but there's a lot of things I don't like too. So let, let's rewrite this movie again. I, I'm going to say in my rewrite, I want Tony Roberts as Stacey Sutton, but she, you have know, the, the same storyline. She, she's the heiress and she is being bought off by Zorin and all that stuff, but she is the least important of that, uh, of that plot line. And actually, maybe we meet her mother or her aunt, or somebody, or her older sister, or something. And that's who Bond actually carries on the story with, you know? Mm -hmm. It it just felt weird that there was so much focus on that and on her, and I thought their chemistry was not great. Um, So, again, going back to what do we want out of Roger Moore to end his run as James Bond, well... You know, she's not that much older, but go back even just six years to Lois Childs as Holly Goodhead. Just in terms of maturity, in terms of demeanor, she comes across as a little better match for this bond of this age. Um, or, or somebody, I'm sure we could pick many other people who would have been, uh, in my mind at least, a, a little better match. To me, Stacy in this was a little too much like say bb where right not not that she was playing dumb like bb but but so much younger that it just sort of became a joke in the movie so if that's what it's going to be then just let her have her story let that be the the point for bond to put together what's going on but then maybe the love interest can be somebody else Maybe that's the way they put in the scene with the KGB agent. I just feel like, oh, we're we're running short on time here. We have to have a, another scene with a woman, so uh, we'll throw in a KGB agent. Sure. It'll be totally <laughs> inconsequential. You could cut it out if you wanted to. Well, and that's the thing, because uh, that woman felt like more 
it, it felt more comfortable because she felt a little bit closer to his age. You kind of felt like they maybe had mm. some history together, you know, and so uh, maybe when they run into each other, <laughs> uh, they this you know, have a, a dalliance, <laughs> and then they, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and that, so that felt kind of adult and everything, whereas I feel like Tanya Roberts' character, Stacey Sutton, comes off as this young, naive person who's gotten wrapped up in this spy intrigue game she doesn't belong here number one but two she's too she feels too young for him and like you said christy it's kind of nice that they don't immediately sleep together you know he basically puts her to bed like a child um Mm -hmm. and pats her on the head and goes to the other room and you're like oh great bond that's that's great for you not to take advantage of her um and and then by the end of the movie they you know they're in the shower together and it it just it doesn't that's not their chemistry. You know, yeah, their chemistry right. is like him and BB, not him and Maud Adams. You know? Yeah. Right. So yeah. and, and that's what's lacking in the film with her as the Bond girl is they're trying to force that into this, you know. Um, you know, let's be honest, I Bond is not the guy in this movie who's gonna walk by women and they're gonna look at him like, Oh, I wish he was taking me to bed. That's mm-hmm. not Roger Moore at this point, but they're still trying to play it off like that is Roger Moore. And that's the frustrating right. thing is they, they they aren't acknowledging that that just ain't where we are anymore, folks. Um, so, mm-hmm. and that's frustrating. Um, but I guess like we should probably move, a, we've got uh, John Barry back for the score uh, yes. as well as um, Duran Duran doing our uh, theme, which... Regardless of the theme, this is one of the worst uh, opening scenes. Uh, the 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 um, theme song menagerie that's happening in the background is awful. Just awful. totally disagree. Totally disagree. Really, this is this is eighties excess the way it should be because <laughs> it I, feels I mean, like it, I should be on crack. Yes. Yes. <laughs> The the ridiculous makeup, the the over the top style, it, it was sort of like Patrick Nagel on acid, <laughs> and I, I just felt like okay, of all the things that have, of all the things that have led Bond to have an uneasy transition into the eighties and an uneasy transition into an older actor playing Bond, at least with this, we're just going to embrace how ridiculous it is. We're going to embrace all that is tacky and over the top about the eighties and this style. Maybe that's why I'm okay with Grace Jones in this movie. Um, because it's just saying like, yeah, look guys, it's 1985. There's nothing we can do about it. Here you go. <laughs> you know? got to roll with the times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love the song. Um, and it, it, it just sort of fit. And, and I'm thank goodness we got John Barry back. Uh, to do the soundtrack. Not really a standout soundtrack, but when you compare to some of the awful soundtracks we've had uh, previously. Although I do like the the score for Octopussy. I just don't like the uh, the title song. Um, but yeah, I you know what? It, it's it's awful, Matt. You're right. But I love it for all its awfulness. <laughs> Yeah, I I have to say the thing that caught me the most was the intro song because it's so different from most of the, especially Roger Moore intro songs we get that have those, you know, beautiful female vocals. This is male vocals, rock and roll, definitely 1985, just complete stark contrast to the rest. Um, But it's like, like you said, John, you know, maybe it suits it for the time better mm-hmm. than it would have otherwise, you know, right. rather than having another, um, what am I thinking? Like for your eyes only kind of intro, this is more interesting. Um, but I, but I don't like the visual aspect of it at all. <laughs> it was painful and it, and it felt like it didn't have anything with it either. But it, I will say the soundtrack overall did have its good points here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially during the ski scene until the California girls part, <laughs> Yes, it yes. had some good instrumentals, but yeah, it overall didn't impress me. 
I like the orchestral uh, variations that we have on the title mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they work really well. Yeah, yeah, John Barry here really does do a good job. You know, there isn't anything I think is a huge standout, but then the fact that there isn't anything inserting itself, you're like, oh, that doesn't fit. You know, that's good here in the score. You either want it to be something you don't really pay attention to or to be a standout. You don't want that thing that draws you out of the movie and like, oh, that just doesn't fit. Um, I, You know, I, the Duran Duran song, it's fine. It's not like going to be on my playlist or anything. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's not my favorite song for sure, especially Bond theme wise. And yeah, the the black light, you know, painted chicks. The you know, for the 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 theme. Bring it on, montage. Bring it on. Uh, you know, <laughs> now I know what John's house looks like uh, during Halloween. Black lights so, and painted chicks. Um, you do, yeah. Yes. Um, yes. But it, you know, it. It's okay because in in the sense, like, I get what you're saying, John. It, it does. I mean, this is that part of the 80s. Like, this is that section of the 80s that kind of is cocaine-infused. Um, mm-hmm. And it just mm-hmm. does feel like somebody was a little bit tripped out when they f- thought up this, you know, um, theme sequence. So, I don't know. For you guys, this is... I'm really interested because... Um, I had no idea what to expect coming into this one in the sense that I hadn't seen this Bond movie in a really, really long time. So I'm going to be really interested to see where you guys rate it. So Christy, for you, rating A View to a Kill, where do you land? Sure. So I would say on my first watchings in the past, remembering the film before my rewatch, I would have rated it lower, actually. I thought of it as more of a... Three out of ten saddles. Saying back in the saddle a lot in this movie, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but now honestly, it, I, like I said, I felt like it had some really redeeming things for me that I had fun watching. I felt like Roger Moore was having fun. That he was maybe kind of saying, "It's my last one. They know it. I know it. I'm just gonna goof off. I'm gonna do a good job, but I'm gonna have fun with it more than I usually do." And I, I loved Christopher Walken. I, I liked Tanya here and there, even though I think we could have had a better Bond girl and she was a little too um, silly girl. Um, I, I like her voice and I thought that she you know, was cool in that role. Um, so I think where I end up instead of a three is more like a six out of ten. Mm. Um, so it went up a little bit for me. Wow, nice. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in a similar position this this is a Roger Moore movie that I had avoided rewatching um because I, I knew my favorites I knew that spy who loved me was always gonna be at the top of my list I know that I did not enjoy this movie very much on rewatch you know years ago like on on VHS or whatever catching it on TV from time to time and, and it really is about that third act that that just sort of makes it all fall apart for me um, but rewatching it for our show, I found the things that I did like, and the first and foremost, Christopher Walken, because that is just ideal casting. Um, again, Roger Moore is doing what he can to hold it together in a bad situation. <laughs> um, so there are elements here that work. Certainly Patrick McNee, we all like him, um, we didn't mention in terms of the Bond women, uh, Jenny Flex, Allison Duty, who at the time I thought, wow, this is the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in a movie. And then a few mm-hmm. years later, she's in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I thought again, wow, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen on screen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, not enough of her to do in this movie. But um, yeah, I would have ranked this as like a two or a three, but um, I'm going to give it uh, I'm going to give it four blimps that are so sneaky that they can actually sneak up on a person without <laughs> realizing there's a blimp behind them. Wow, that is shocking. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, that is a sneaky absolutely blimp. Absolutely shocking. <laughs> um, I do want to say, uh, John, as you were talking, I was like, oh, Allison, I... I I'm looking yeah. her up right now on the Google. She looks yeah. just as good now as she did back in the day. She's it's fabulous. amazing. She's fabulous. Yeah. Why isn't she in yeah. more stuff? I don't understand. I don't know. I don't um, know. So this is interesting. Um, 
because I'm at the, I'm at the opposite spectrum as you guys. I I didn't really remember this film enough to have a strong indication when I had looked back on my Letterboxd uh, score, which is a great website. Uh, everyone, you should check out. It's a great way to keep track of the movies you watch. Um, so I, I had rated it three out of five stars. I thought, okay, maybe this is better than I thought. Um, sadly, as I watched the film, I found myself legitimately bored and tuning out, which I don't normally do when I'm watching a movie for the 602 Club, and I felt awful about it, but then I realized that's just an indication of the movie not keeping my interest. It's it's not... I, I think the problem is, is we really are on Bond autopilot at this point, and there isn't enough here to make me want to pay attention. It's just, that's the problem. There's There's nothing spectacular here happening. Christopher Walken's great. He doesn't have enough to do. Allison, it's great. Doesn't have anything to do. Patrick McNee is fantastic. He's killed off. Uh, so I don't really care. You know, and and even as fun as Roger Moore is, there's just too much fire truck in this movie. Um, you know, it, it's like all of these things that, that um, they kind of have a good idea, but then they probably, they just take it too far to where it's like you've bled out anything interesting 10 minutes ago. So... It comes down to me, it was a three out of five stars, but now it's one and a half out of five fire truck chases. Mm, um, right. It's a bad, right. bad, bad movie. Um, <laughs> but there, the, 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 the redeeming part about this was is, is me realizing this would have been a fantastic villain in another movie. They had mm-hmm. some kernels of some interesting ideas here. They just don't know how to do them at this point because I don't feel like they feel challenged. So um, this is 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 rote for them. It's routine at this point. And um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that as as we're going to be diving into the new year, we'll be digging into a new bond. And I think that does kind of kickstart them again. To just, like we need to try something different. And Timothy Dalton is going to give them the opportunity. I think, to be able to do that. So I'll be looking forward to to The Living Daylights as we kick off next year with Timothy Dalton and then, of course, uh, License to Kill. And then we hit Brosnan, uh, which was my very first Bond watching all the way through uh, with Goldeneye. So we've got some great stuff coming up for you. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we have uh, want to say a huge thank you to... Ken Tripp and Davis Grace is for supporting the network through Patreon. And uh, they're our associate producers here on the 602 Club, have been for the longest time. Really appreciate them. I also appreciate what they do for the network. This is such a huge network. We do so many things, and there's absolutely no way that we can do this without you. And so uh, go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can become part of the team. We have some really great things that we uh, love to uh, give back to you for your support. Um, and again, it it just, we can't do without you. Every little bit helps. So again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Christy, uh, it's been fantastic walking through uh, this year, these Bond films with you. We've finished Roger Moore. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you if they'd like to talk to you more about anything that you've got going on. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk to you guys about how much I love Timothy Dalton and uh, Pierce Brosnan, even just for their looks. <laughs> Not very good at that, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at my new handle, a little more Star Wars themed, Bespin Bell, B-E-L-L-E. And um, I'm on the 602 Club, of course, reviewing the Bond films here and then um, some supplemental episodes talking about Stranger Things and other geeky stuff. And then uh, I also write for FangirlNextDoor.com and StarWarsReport.com. And John, uh, goodness, the uh, paisley jacket is just looking mm. fabulous, my friend. And well, can uh, I just say that we're we're the best looking podcast team in in the podcasting world. I know that people can't see us right yes. now, but I'll just go yeah, ahead take and make our that blanket statement. Folks. Yeah, yeah, this is a good looking <laughs> crew right yeah, here. Yeah, I'm in the the black lace this evening. Oh, oh my goodness! Yes, fabulous <laughs> dress, just, brilliant I'm clothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, I guess on a Bond con- commentary, you need to t- you need to say that. Um, so anyway, before we get into huge trouble, John, where can people find you? 
<laughs> sure, the best place to find me is through my other show, uh, which would be Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, missionlogpodcast.com. Or if you want to talk to me personally about uh, Bond and Star Trek and all the other nerdy stuff that I'm into, that would be on Twitter at DVDGeeks. Well, I hope you will check both of these amazing people out uh, where they can be found. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram under that same name. I'm here on the network, Chris Jones, doing the orb all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am also on the Nerd Party Network. Do a couple of shows there. You can find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. We talk all about Star Wars. In fact, I highly encourage you to go over there this week. We just dropped our audio commentary for row one as we're getting ready for the last jedi so make sure you check that out you can find me on owl post with Drea kaufman talking all about harry potter we're going through each and every chapter of the that book series one chapter at a time it's been a blast we're right in the middle of the prisoner of azkaban so join us it's a it's a lot of fun uh, and then um, one last thing, I'm doing a Cine Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk all about film through the lens of faith. In our latest episode, we uh, walked through uh, some of the thematic elements, uh, kind of the morals, meanings, and messages of films, uh, kind of like John does with Star Trek, with Mission Log, uh, and it's called Cinema Stories. And you can find all the shows that uh, both John and I do uh, all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Oh,